0: Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists.
1: It's Sunday, October the 10th, 2010, so that's 101010, 10, 10, and this is The Naked Scientists. And this week, we're finding out what tricks retailers have up their sleeves to make you buy stuff.
2: I did a little bit of checking before we came. This product is genuinely half price. Conversely, if you were going to buy your dishwasher tablets here, they would cost you slightly more than twice as much. So they're winning on some and losing on others. But because of the way our minds work, we tend to think that other things are cheap as well.
1: That is the field that is neuromarketing. It's using a knowledge of the nervous system and your psychology to make you part with more money. And this week, we'll find out how it all works. Hello, I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for joining me on this week's show. Sarah Castor Perry. Sarah, hello.
3: Hello. In the news this week, we'll hear how after 10 years of hard slog out on the high seas, scientists have produced a catalogue of what's really out there in the oceans. And we'll find out what many wives and girlfriends have known for years that men really are sweatier.
1: I'm not, I can assure you <laughs> very much, Sarah. So if you've got a question for us, here's how you get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Naked Scientists Facebook page or you can send us an email. The email address chris at thenakedscientists.com. Laying
0: the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
3: This week marked the first report of the Census of Marine Life. This has been a worldwide project spanning the last 10 years aiming to catalogue the diversity, distribution and abundance of life in the oceans. I went along to the launch of the Census report in London and spoke to marine ecologist Enric Sala.
1: Well, today was a celebration of 10 years of great work. 2,700 people from 80 different countries who have worked their peep off for 10 years this project has completely transformed our vision of the ocean. So right now we know that there are far more species than we thought, that the ocean life is more connected than we thought, but also that is more impacted
4: by human activities than we thought 10 years ago.
1: That was
3: Enric Sala who acted as a compare for all the talks and discussions throughout the day of the launch and was also involved in looking back at fish populations of the past for the survey. As Enric said, this was a global effort. Researchers went out and collected samples, took photographs and measurements from all types of marine ecosystem, from tropical mangroves to under the sea ice in Antarctica to abyssal plains and ocean trenches out to the open ocean to try and get an idea of what species were living in each area. During the census, they found 6,000 potential new species and have pushed up the estimate for total marine species to over 250,000. One of the methods pioneered by the census was DNA barcoding, which allows you to take a sample from an ecosystem and identify all the animals present. Anne Bucklin is from the University of Connecticut.
4: The way the census has started barcoding is what we call gold standard barcoding. And so we work from an identified specimen and we determine a sequence. And so now we have a gold standard. We have a DNA sequence with a name on it. So overall, 35,000 species of marine organisms, marine animals, have been barcoded. Now what we're starting to do is to take that scoop of animals, whether it's a net sample of plankton, a scoop of sediment, any kind of habitat that you could name, and we're doing deep sequencing with the new high-throughput sequencing to tell us how many species we think are in that sample. Some of those will match our library of gold standard barcodes. Some will not, but some will be close enough so that we can classify. So we say, we don't know what copepod that is, but we know it's a copepod. And so that's the power of what we call environmental barcoding.
3: And Bucklin there. In terms of the distribution of species, researchers used a range of tracking methods, including satellites and acoustic techniques, to find out where, when and how far species travel. The tracking studies, as well as looking at the genetics in different areas, led the census to conclude that ecosystems and marine species are much more interconnected than we thought, which really has important implications for conservation. Looking at abundance... This is where it becomes a much less positive story. The census estimates that 90% of top marine predators like tuna, marlin and sharks have been lost in the last 50 years alone due to over-exploitation and habitat loss. And looking much further back, they found that humans have been impacting fish populations for much longer than we previously thought, certainly back at least 2,000 years. But the census isn't just an interesting piece of zoological and ecological information. It could also act as a guide to inform conservation efforts and the guide to policy makers. As maritime lawyer turned ocean conservation advisor, Christina Jurdy
4: explains. Bringing the high seas, the oceans, into the living room will help to stir some concern about what is the state of the ocean these days and if that concern can be translated to our policy makers that's in their capitals, in our um, hometowns, then we would start to see some action. That was
3: Christina Jurdy talking to me at the Royal Institution in London and if you'd like to hear more about the census of marine life this month's Naked Oceans podcast that you can download at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans will be all about the census and that will be out on Thursday the
1: 14th of October. Certainly a uh, carpaceous study that was done there, Sarah. Thank you very much. Well, also this week, researchers have made another interesting finding in regard to what actually happens when a person puts on a bit too much weight. Now, not all fat-storing cells, which are known as adipocytes, are equal, it seems. And from the Mayo Clinic to tell us more, Michael Jensen.
5: We were trying to understand why when some people uh, gain weight... They gain it in their hips and thighs, which seems to protect from cardiovascular disease. And other people tend to gain it in their abdominal area, which seems to put them at higher risk.
1: So, in other words, this is the apples and pears analogy, isn't it? People who are very apple-shaped, they put all the weight on around the middle, have a very different risk of of being overweight than people who put the weight on around the bum.
5: Yeah, that's what we were trying to find out, is there's something we can measure before you even gain weight that will predict where you're going to gain that weight. So we asked about uh, 28 people who were normal weight, who had never been overweight, and who were completely healthy to undergo some initial tests, including some fat biopsies, and then to really overeat for about eight weeks to try to gain about uh, four kilograms. And then the idea is to measure where they gained the fat and then to repeat the fat biopsies and see what had changed about their fat tissue.
1: So by looking in the different zones of the body, you're asking, do the fat cells change equivalently in the different anatomical zones, the abdomen versus uh, around your hips, for example, I guess to find out whether the cells there are behaving equivalently?
5: Yes, but also to see uh, how they behave with regards to how much fat is gained in that area. So what we found is that the people who, when they gain weight in their abdomen, they gain it primarily by their fat cells getting bigger. When people gain weight in their hip and thigh area, their fat cells don't get bigger, they make more fat cells so that they keep their fat cell size on average staying about the same. So the implication is if you're putting weight on in the hip and thigh area, it's because you're creating new fat cells.
1: But that flies in the face of what I guess doctors have been learning at medical school for many years, which is that after a certain age you don't make any more fat cells, you just get fatter by making the ones you have got get bigger.
5: That's right, and so that was what was so striking to us, is that it completely overturned everything we'd been taught.
1: Okay, so you've got this interesting finding. People put on increased numbers of cells around their hips, they have increasing size of cells in the abdomen. Where next? Where does this leave us?
5: Well, the other thing we found is that the people who did make more cells in the thighs were less likely to gain weight in the abdomen, um, suggesting that it, it maybe the ability to create new fat cells in the hip and thigh area is one thing that might protect you from uh, getting bigger cells in the abdominal area.
1: In other words, it's a sort of sequestration process. If you're making new cells in your hips, you're not putting the fat around your middle, which is the fat we know is associated with ill health
5: exactly sort of the good news bad news story the bad news is you're making more fat cells which most people wouldn't want to do the good news is is those fat cells are doing exactly the job you want them to do they're having the fat stored benignly inside fat cells rather than going into bigger fat cells or worse yet going into organs like liver and muscle where the fat can can cause some insulin resistance
1: So does this mean that one way we could tackle obesity, and not just obesity, the linked condition, diabetes, which is, of course, much more common in people who gain too much weight, if we could find what is causing those cells to behave differently in those two areas, and then in people who have a a tendency to put weight on around the middle, we could make the fat instead be directed towards this less unhealthy distribution around the hips, then we might have a way of reducing the risk of someone going on to develop an obesity-linked disorder or disease.
5: Yes, that's exactly right. That's what we're, we're hoping is that it to, even if we can't prevent people from becoming obese, which it doesn't seem we're having very good luck, if we could at least prevent them from becoming ill as a result of the weight gain, that would be at least some
1: accomplishment. How close are you to being able to realize that, to being able to work out what is causing these cells to behave differently, not just in different bits of the body, but in different people?
5: Uh, not as close as I would like to be, I'm afraid. I think the the next steps are to begin looking much more closely at the pre the precursors to fat cells in the different depots, and specifically in people who who we know already have gained uh, weight preferentially in the hip and thigh area versus those who are not able to, and and look to see what is it about those cells that are differently, and not just the mature adipocytes, but the pre-adipocytes.
1: Certainly food for thought, isn't it? That was Michael Jensen, who is from the Mayo Clinic, and that work was published this week in the journal PNAS. Sarah.
3: Well, I guess I just need to hope that if I put on weight, I put it on in the right places. Really interesting stuff. Now, Chris, I don't know if you've ever heard of rafflesia.
1: It it sounds like some kind of... uh aftershave or something?
3: (laughs) Well it's one of the biggest flowers in the world it's it's found in the tropics and it attracts flies to itself to pollinate it by releasing the rather gross smell of rotting meat and sounds nice yeah lovely and this week researchers led by Johannes Stockel have published a paper in Current Biology describing another flower that uses an unusual smell to attract its pollinators. It's called the Solomon's Lily, and it's a member of the Arum genus, which also contains the largest flower in the world, which is called the Titan Arum. And it releases a sweet smell that mimics rotting or fermenting fruit to attract drosophilid fruit flies. This lily uses what is known as deceptive pollination to trick the flies into pollinating it. I mean, most flowers attract their pollinators like insects, birds, bats, that sort of thing, with some sort of reward, like a sweet, sugary nectar. The pollinator visits the flower, and in the process of feeding on the nectar, pollen gets transferred to them that they then transfer to another plant. But obviously, it's quite costly to the plant to produce the sweet nectar, so some plants trick their pollinators into pollinating them without giving them a reward. They release smells that are similar to the food source or the breeding place of the insect, or sometimes they even mimic the pheromones of the female insects to attract the male ones. And that's what this lily does. It mimics the smell of something that attracts the fruit flies. So what the researchers did is that they analysed the volatile compounds released by the lily using gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. And they found that six of the 13 compounds that make up the smell are also found in rotting fruit and fermentation products like vinegar and wine. And they're also very attractive to these fruit flies.
1: It's amazing, isn't it, to think that the lily has... I suppose it's not amazing, really, because it works, but it's incredible to think the lily has evolved to make the same odours or odours that smell like the ones that the flies like. Well, it's really
3: interesting because it's almost like the flower has evolved to exploit these particular fly smell centres. And something else that the the research showed was that they did some functional imaging of the fly smell centre, the antennal lobe, and they found that the compounds released by the lily activate the same parts of the antennal lobe, which is a bit like the olfactory bulb in our brains, as the smells of rotting fruit. So the lily is actually exploiting the fact that these flies have evolved to be very sensitive to these particular compounds in order to attract them. So I it's kind of interesting in two ways, from an evolutionary point of view that the flower has evolved to so closely mimic the smell of the rotting fruit, and also from the point of view that it's helped to shed a bit more light on the way the fruit fly brain works and responds to particular
1: smells. Indeed. I still think it's funny to think about the concept of a fly brain, because it really is quite small. <laughs> now, I have a question for you. Um, have you heard this statement, horses sweat, men perspire, women glow? which is what you did when you walked into this studio, because it's about 5,000 degrees in here. <laughs> uh,
3: I've heard it, but uh, I'm
1: not sure it's true in my case, unfortunately. Well, I was hoping you were going to tell me where it came from, actually, because I can't find... I was just poking around over the weekend looking for where this reference comes from. I can't find who said that in the first place, but that's really by the by. It's actually true, though, because a group of researchers at uh, Osaka International University in Japan, this is Yoshimoto Inua and his colleagues, they've got a paper out this week in which they have found, um, and they published this in Experimental Physiology that men indeed do sweat more than women do. So what they did was recruited 37 individuals and this was a mixture of trained men and women and also untrained men and women and they asked them to do a fairly rigorous exercise regime that lasted an hour and they had to exercise starting at about 35% and building up to 60% of their maximum exercise tolerance during this exercise regime. So this was a pretty harsh workout and it got the people sweating and they measured how many sweat glands these people had on patches of their skin and they also measured how much sweat was coming out and what they found is that men always at any intensity of exercise will sweat more than women they found that they also found that if a person trains both male or female training increases your ability to sweat so when you're trained for any given temperature or exertion you will sweat more so it increases the efficiency of sweating But even a very highly trained woman will never be able to sweat as much as a man. So for a start, wives and girlfriends are absolutely right when they accuse us blokes of being sweaty. We've got no defence whatsoever now. But the other important thing here is that from an evolutionary point of view, this is informative, because they think, this group of researchers, that women probably have evolved to sweat less than men because as a proportion of their body weight, women have less water on board. Therefore, water is more precious to women... Men have relatively more water, therefore they can afford to lose more water, and therefore men have slightly better heat tolerance because they can sweat more to control their temperature. Therefore, that probably explains why men are more physically active and, and will do things with a higher physical load on them. The other points, bear in mind is men have more testosterone and testosterone seems to drive the activity of sweat glands. Women have less testosterone than men so they have less active sweat glands and when you take exercise it boosts up the testosterone level which increases your sweat gland activity including in women but because women are always going to have a bit less than men that's why you're seeing slightly lower levels in the women than in the men. So there you go, it proves. Horses, they didn't test them but men really do perspire and women really do glow it seems.
0: Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked
3: Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Sarah Cost perry Coming up, we find out how adverts could be designed to unconsciously attract your attention and how the layout of a supermarket can affect how you shop. Now, orangutans are one of the world's most fascinating creatures. Living primarily among the trees, they're the only mammal, apart from us, that habitually walks on two legs. Sue Nelson from the Planet Earth podcast visited Birmingham University's Posture and Balance Lab to meet a team who are researching the way that humans, and by extension our shared ancestors with orangutans, moved around. She spoke to Project Director Dr Susanna Thorpe.
6: We're really interested in human evolution, and one of the most important things is how human ancestors started to walk on two legs. And our idea is that this began in the trees. So what we've created here is the kind of environment that our early ancestors would have experienced when they were walking on two legs and trying to balance on the edges of trees as they're trying to reach for fruit or cross gaps in the canopy.
7: You say our common ancestors, we haven't got any of those present, so what do you use instead? We're using humans to try and understand
6: what our ancestors did, but we're also using orangutans. And this is on the basis that we think the origins of bipedalism lie in our ancestors moving around in the canopy of tropical forest, And orangutans are the only one of the great apes, which are our closest living relatives, to still live in that habitat. So they're a perfect model to understand the problems that our ancestors would have faced.
7: What role is Emma Tequin, who's a doctoral researcher, going to play here not that of an uh, orangutan or or is she? Emma's going to be our guinea pig
6: today (laughs) and she's going to walk on the beam and hopefully she's going to be able to balance on it without falling off.
7: Emma's also with Dr Sam Coward. Sam you designed this equipment here what are you going to do to Emma in order to examine how she actually walks across this recreated forest branch?
2: Well we have a number of cameras in this room which track reflective markers that can be placed on the subject. This technology is commonly used in filmmaking, so it's the sort of technology that was used in the making of Gollum.
7: In Lord of the Rings?
2: That's correct. To get enough information to fully recreate full-body movements, we have to put somewhere in the region of 70 markers on the subject.
7: Emma is now fully kitted up. Could you explain, Susanna, what Emma is going to be doing for us here?
6: You can see that the beam, we have one fixed end and one free end. And obviously it's much harder moving on the free end because it's more flexible, so it's going to bend more under her mass, under which her is,
7: weight. Which is how a, a branch in a tree would be.
6: Yep. And she's going to walk slowly along towards the end of the beam. And if she feels like she might fall off, she's going to
7: use the thinner hand beam to help balance herself. Oh, well, I'm starting at the... Unfixed end, and this is the most flexible end, so the most unstable. So it's getting a little bit easier as I'm walking towards the fixed end, but I'm still having to use the hand beam for balance. How does it feel compared to how you normally walk? A lot more unstable. You're kind of wanting to grip with your feet, which I suppose is poses similar to what an orangutan would do in the canopy. And this is on the thickest beam, so I dread to think how fair on the, on the narrower <laughs> ones.
6: We're trying to get information on all aspects of this movement, both from the perspective of the person moving on the branch and from the perspective of the branch itself. So the beam is instrumented, which means that we can record the forces that the person is is exerting on them as they walk. On EMMA, we have all these reflective markers, and the cameras are picking those up so that we have very detailed... 3D movement of her body and all of the separate limbs. Coupled with that we have an EMG system attached to her muscles as well which are these sticky plasters that record muscle activity and finally we also have an ultrasound attached to her muscles and these tell us how much the tendon is moving and how much the muscle fibers are moving themselves. The final part of the programme is to play on this screen images of branches moving in the wind, and this is to try and destabilise her a bit more, make it much more realistic for how it, it would be for one of our earliest ancestors to move in the arboreal canopy, where the branches are all moving and which must knock their balance.
7: What do you hope to gain from this research?
6: We hope to gain two things, really. One is a better understanding of how orangutans move in their habitat and how costly it is because logging and deforestation is devastating their habitat and if we can understand their crucial habitat requirements we can gain a lot of knowledge about where they can be reintroduced and so forth. Our second primary outcome of this project is to understand about our own evolution, to work out why bipedalism evolved, what the benefits were in our early ancestors and how well adapted our ancestors were to walking on two legs before they came down to the ground.
3: It really is very sad that orangutans are so endangered now, given that they're actually quite similar to us in their bipedalism. That was Susanna Thorpe from the University of Birmingham, ending that report by Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson.
1: Sarah, thank you. Uh, Incidentally, if you enjoyed that, there are more of Sue's podcasts, as well as some other links to their Planet Earth resources that she helps to make at thenakerscientist.com forward slash planet earth.
3: On today's show, we're talking about neuromarketing, but what actually is it? I caught up with Gemma Calvert, who until recently was Professor of Applied Neuroscience at Warwick University and is now Managing Director of Neurosense Limited, to find out.
8: Well, neuromarketing is a term used to describe the application of tools and tasks that have been derived from the fields of cognitive psychology and neuroscience to measure the non-conscious and biological as opposed to the rational, conscious and psychological reactions to marketing stimuli, materials, and brands, and communications.
3: How exactly does a researcher go about looking into that sort of thing? What sort of studies are used to give us this information?
8: There are a wide range of techniques which are now at our disposal and which have been applied in a commercial uh, setting for the last 10 years, including Techniques such as eye tracking, which can be done in store or looking at people's visual attention on a pack. techniques such as EEG, which allows us to track slight changes in positive or negative emotions over time, for example, you might do in an advert. And then there is um, functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, which allows you to See deeply inside the brain to discriminate what kinds of emotions and cognitive processes are being elicited when somebody's exposed, for example, to a new product or to a fragrance um, or to a public um, communication.
1: How
3: do companies that wish to market a product, how do they go about using that information?
8: So they're using this to understand much better the needs and drives that underlie human beings and also to build an understanding about the way consumers make decisions and they do this in order to improve marketing strategies and marketing spend.
3: What are the limitations of neuromarketing? People might think, Oh, it's reading your mind, reading what you want, but are are there limitations to the use of these sorts of studies in marketing?
8: I think one has to admit there are limitations to every technique that's available at the moment, but the advantages of these techniques is because so much of our behavior is driven by processes which operate below the level of our awareness, um, without turning to these tools, you can't measure any of that information, so you're throwing away 80% of information about consumers and what they want and how the brain processes communications about those products if you don't use them. And I think we've gone well past the early adopter stage into a more mainstream uptake of these technologies. But we have to admit that they are still in their infancy. So the uh, story has a long way to run, and we're just getting future developments and further developments in the technological side of things is going to mean that we're going to be able to gain a much, much more in-depth understanding of the kinds of things that we can do to create better consumer experiences.
3: And when I spoke to Gemma, she was also keen to stress that these sorts of techniques are merely one part of the arsenal of methods used to research responses to products and adverts, along with questionnaires, market research, that sort of thing. But they can certainly help make those other methods more effective. That was Gemma Calvert, director of Neurosense Limited.
1: You're listening to the Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor Perry. We're talking neuro advertising this week, and still to come, we'll find out why getting a celebrity to promote a product actually works. And towards the end of the show, Diana O'Carroll will be asking whether the moon looks the same for the people down under. Plus, it's been a very good day for geeks this week because today is ten ten ten, and if you write ten 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 in binary, that's one zero one zero one zero, and if you convert that binary number. Into a decimal, you get 42, which anyone who is a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan, Douglas Adams fan, will know was the answer to life, the universe, and everything, according to the massive computer that was built in uh, the life of the universe and, and, in, uh, the, and in that book. So, is this a special day? Is the world going to end at the end of today? Who knows? Sarah.
3: Well, if you don't yet have the answers to life, the universe and everything, and you've got any burning questions on this week's topic, neuromarketing, contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists. post a comment on Facebook, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Now, we're talking about advertising, and one of the main ab- aims of an advert, or a billboard or a poster, is, of course, to attract your attention. So, how does the brain actually decide what it's going to look at? To help us decide and to work out what makes things eye-catching is Dr. Andy Parton, who's a lecturer in psychology at Bruno University. Hello, Andy. Hi, Chris. So tell us, if I want to make the advert from heaven that's going to guarantee me some sales, what do we we need to know about how the brain works in order to do that?
9: Um, Well, it's a, a very complex question. I guess what we're looking at from our point of view is mechanisms underlying the processes of what we call visual attention. So if you imagine when you look around a complex scene, there are many things that you could actually look at and choose to look at or just without thinking look at. And the way that that is determined is by the uh, process of attention. Some of the things are really kind of obvious. So if, for example, most of the things in the room are black and there's suddenly something very bright, you will tend to look over at it. So things that stand out and are quite obvious you'll look at but there are other uh, things which are maybe to do with strategy what are you interested in so if i'm searching around in my living room trying to find my keys then i'm probably going to spend time kind of attending to things that are a bit shiny and a bit metallic as opposed to things that are clearly not not my keys
1: indeed but the, the point is that if you're looking for those keys the brain is being assailed by this barrage of sensory information which is going to include things that aren't keys, things that that are keys. How does the brain assign to the sensory information that's coming in some kind of label to say, hey, that's important, that's what I've got to look for?
10: Um,
9: Again, uh, that's a very tricky thing, and it is dependent on both the basic visual properties and the strategic um, aims of the person looking around. I mean, what we were interested in doing is, I guess, at one level... Above that, and actually looking at the actual code that the brain uses for um, achieving this. So assuming that you want to attend to sort of one thing, how do you actually code that differently so it kind of stands out amongst the coding within the brain?
1: Indeed. So what did you do to try and understand that?
9: Well, we looked at a theory which suggests that actually to do this, the brain needs to... Uh, recruit lots of areas across the brain simultaneously, and it needs to link all of their activity. And it does this by briefly synchronizing the firings of nerve cells or neurons in those parts of the brain at the same time. And to actually try and induce that experimentally, to actually get the brain to do that without um, specifically um, changing attention, we found. Uh, Another study which had suggested that basically if you look at a light that flickers, your your neurons in your brain actually change their activity at the same rate as the flickering light. Even when the light is flickering at such a fast speed, you can't actually tell it's flickering. So it's entirely subliminal to you that this light is flickering, but the neurons in your brain, if you measure them with EEG, are actually changing their activity at the same speed.
1: So what are you saying, that there's some kind of magic flicker rate, which if things are pulsing on and off at just that sweet level, the brain will pay more attention to that, because it, it makes these different bits of the brain all fire off, all the ducks are lined up in a row and they all go down together sort of thing?
9: Yes, I mean, that was the basic idea. It was not that, you know, the brain is designed when things are flickering before it to do that, but because the brain uses the neurons changing at that speed for its code, if you can actually induce that, it will have the effect of directing attention.
1: So how did you do it?
9: Well, we had a computer screen and we had three small patches on it. And a fixation cross in the center so people look at the fixation cross and they attend to the three patches and they're told that these stripy patches one of them will have a brief change in its the width of the stripes and they have to indicate which of the three it is what they don't know is that before that occurs for a second one of the patches is flickering at our critical speed And we know they don't know this because we did a separate study in which they had the patches and they had to detect if there was any difference between them. And they couldn't spot whether one was flickering or not above chance. They were entirely random, so people can't detect this. But what we found was when we did this flicker manipulation, if the change in the width of the patch occurred at the same location that had been flickering, Even though people couldn't see it, they were much faster at indicating there was a change there. And if it was at another location, one of the other two patches, they were much slower at indicating that the change was there.
1: Because their attention was being drawn to the one that was flickering and drawn away from the one that wasn't, so they were missing the one that was changing in the patch that wasn't flickering, but they were attending much better to the patch that was flickering, and that's why they saw it better.
9: Absolutely, that's exactly it. And we did another similar thing where they have to actually, a much more subtle change, and it's much more difficult to detect, and we showed that, again, if there was a flicker there before, people could detect this change, but if there wasn't, they were very unlikely to change it.
1: Uh, and to, to detect it, sorry. Uh, And so the logical extension of this would be then, now you've found that there seems to be this coding written into how the brain pays attention to things. Could advertisers exploit that in order to make TV adverts that are more arresting than other content or to make billboards that are more arresting so you pay attention to them and pay attention to the message for longer than you otherwise would?
9: I think it's certainly... There are a couple of problems, but it's certainly in principle possible that if you have a kind of crowded scene, you could draw people to attend to that in comparison to other things that are around... And particularly one might think that if you're looking on an Internet screen and you go to a web page, people are actually fairly skilled at avoiding looking at ads when they go to web pages. (laughs) I'm one of them. Yeah, absolutely, me too. But if you can have something that would just draw them and bias them to look at it briefly, that might obviously increase the effectiveness of that advert. The one problem is, of course, you never know what screen people are looking at the advert on. And so it's very difficult to know precisely what speed the flicker will be at because screens run at different speeds. And so some people will see it at one speed and some people will see it in another. I mean, I guess you can go for the most common kind of screen speed, but that is one difficulty.
1: Although not insurmountable, and I wouldn't put anything past the advertisers. Andy, thank you. That's Dr. Andy Parson. He's from Brunel University in London. Sarah. Well, one thing
3: that is fairly ubiquitous to most adverts is the presence of a celebrity clutching their bottle of perfume or extolling the virtues of a certain brand of makeup advertisers know that a quick glimpse of celebrity will mean a rocket in sales and behavioral studies have shown this too but is there really a neurological basis for why this works mira stallen is from erasmus university in the netherlands and she joins us now to talk about this mira hello hello hi
11: Sarah.
3: so why are we so obsessed with celebrities what is the neurological basis for why why we respond to them
11: So what we did was that we showed some kind of imitation of celebrity advertisements to people in a brain scanner, and what we found is that when people see a celebrity face that's paired with a product, we saw activity in an area in the brain, it's called the medial orbitofrontal cortex, a very fancy name, and that area was particularly active when people saw a famous face with a product. And that suggested that positive emotions that are linked to a celebrity get transferred to the product. And um, well, that's that's more or less what what the neurological basis then is. The positive emotions that are linked to the the celebrity get transferred to the product. And next time, if you see that product, like in a shop or so, you have some positive associations with that. And what we also saw is that these positive associations seem to come from memories that you have linked to the celebrity. So because you have uh, experiences with the celebrity phase, like for movies or theatres, you tend to recollect some memories automatically. And that's where the positive emotions seem to come from.
3: So the medial orbital frontal cortex is involved in taking those positive memories that you have attached to that celebrity and then transferring them to the product. But what would happen if you had a negative view of a particular celebrity?
11: Uh, yeah uh, we didn't test that, but it's very likely that the same mechanism um will be underlying this, but then it won't be the positive emotions that get transferred, but um the the negative ones so. If you have a celebrity that's advertising your product, yeah, you have to be really cautious because if his image is changing into a negative personality, you you risk a chance that your product will get negative associations by
3: uh, showing your product together with this person. So I suppose maybe in the future we could see companies using these sort of studies to compare different celebrities and the average view of these people to then choose which celebrity to advertise their product.
11: Yeah, sure. But I think that already is done. Like, that uh, people already know, marketers know that celebrities work and that they have to be aware of that. So, uh, yeah, definitely celebrities have to to be tested before they get used.
1: Mira, can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, Because I've got a tweet here from uh, someone whose initials on Twitter start OB and they mm-hmm. say why is it that when I hear the Muzak version of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit I desperately want to buy deodorant my question to you is, mm-hmm. is it just a celebrity or is it something that's associated with celebrity, a piece of music which is indirectly coming from a celebrity which can also have this sort of relationship yes.
11: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's how it goes, so it's, it's all about associations, so you might have association. With a, uh, with a song with a celebrity and then when you hear that song you think about the product that has been advertised by the celebrity it's like going uh all via associations so one association can activate another one and that can activate another one and that's how you can get these indirect uh, associations uh, that uh, can happen when you hear a song or so yeah
1: still praying someone will ask me to endorse some stuff but uh, you never know maybe in the future sarah
3: Fantastic. Thanks very much, Mira. That was Mira Stallen from Erasmus University in Rotterdam, and she will be staying with us for the rest of the show. So if you've got any questions for her, do keep them coming in.
1: It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Sarah Castor Perry. We're talking about how supermarkets and retailers subvert you into buying stuff, uh, perhaps that you didn't originally intend to buy. And so we're going to take a delve into the supermarket system which is at play to try to make you part with your money and so we sent Smeetam and Assad out shopping to find out how they do it.
12: Imagine it's a Saturday afternoon. Many of us are wandering through our local supermarket for our weekly shop unaware of just how many messages we are unknowingly taking in as we choose what goes in our basket. To unveil some of these hidden messages I've come along to a large supermarket here in Cambridge and joining me is expert in consumer psychology Philip Graves. Straight away, I can see a huge red sign with a special offer for wine.
2: Yeah, this is quite unusual. What most supermarkets do is introduce you to the fresh products straight away. But here, they've gone a different way, and what they're doing is they're presenting us with a lot of offers. What that does is it attracts you in, it draws you in. We're used to that big red sign, the big price point, and that's a quick way of buying. So rather than spending all that time looking at this big confusing selection where if you don't know much about wine you could spend all day, here they're giving you an easy decision to make. This is obviously, in quotes, a good deal because it's got a big red price.
12: I don't know very much about wine and I always think, oh look, that's a £10 bottle marked down for £5 and I get it thinking it's definitely good wine. But is that always the case?
2: In neurological studies what they've found is if you give people the same wine but tell them it's more expensive they actually experience it as being better at a brain level the reward centers of the brain light up when the price is higher so the reality is you will enjoy it more if you believe that what you've got is a 10 pound bottle of wine but you've only paid five pounds for it
12: we've ventured a little bit further into the shop now we're actually yet to come near any groceries as such But you've stopped. What's caught your eye?
2: Well, I'm looking here at this very heavily discounted product, an anti-wrinkle cream. This is all part of giving us the feeling that there are great deals more widely and that the total shopping experience is inexpensive. Now, I did a little bit of checking before we came. This product is genuinely half price. Conversely, if you were going to buy your dishwasher tablets here, they would cost you slightly more than twice as much as they would in the other supermarket. So what's happening is they're winning on some and losing on others. But the impression that we pick up because of the way our minds work is to select those deals and attribute them to the store we're in. And if that's something we're buying, we tend to think that other things are cheap as well because of those great headline-grabbing deals that we encounter.
12: So you get an overall impression that this is a really good place to shop
2: Well, that's right, because if you think about it, all the the big deals, the big discount, this feels fantastic. So there's a huge emotional impact at a brain level from that product. But the mundane products you're buying that are ordinary, everyday things that are at the standard price don't have the same impact. So you have what's known as an availability heuristic. This looms large in your mind where the other things don't. And as a result of that, we tend to misattribute later on the general feeling of competitive pricing because of the one or two examples that we find that we feel great about.
12: And I guess the other factor to take into account is I don't often walk around with a bunch of prices or price comparisons printed out. I'm not often 100% of what the most competitive price of an everyday product is
2: absolutely right you know we rely on these general themes these general ideas these heuristics we have about whether or not we're making good decisions or not but they're nothing to do with the facts because they're too complicated to get access to they're too difficult to and too time consuming to reference so we create these shortcuts in our own mind and sometimes they work for us but sometimes they're open to a little bit of uh, manipulation exploitation
12: Around the corner though, at last there's some food.
2: That's right, we're now into the the food part of the experience and they have primed us with the fresh produce. So we've got fresh fruit and vegetables, flowers on one side and fresh meat on another. So this is setting us up to think this is a place that sells fresh food even though probably over 50% of the products in here are going to be ambient, long-storage products.
12: Spinning around now there's loads and loads of really colourful juice cartons with big signs, with buy four for three pounds. What's going on here?
2: You've got those big prices again, which, remember, back at the beginning of the store, people were primed to look out for. My guess is that a lot of the people who are buying the juices from that display won't know what the individual price of those cartons is. But in a sense, nor will they care, because they're taking this shortcut that's saying this is obviously a good price because it's a big red price so they're using the priming they've set you up with they're carrying it through and they're cashing in on the fact that you probably won't scrutinize how much of an effective deal that is
12: i've just seen a lady put a big bag of 24 toilet tissues into her trolley so is buying in bulk then a good idea
2: again we use these shortcuts shopping in a supermarket isn't about consciously evaluating all the time if you did that i would think your total shop would probably take you a day if you really wanted to price check look at the cost per gram it's just not practical it's not the way it would work and it's not the way our brains are designed to work either we work on these heuristics these shortcuts that generally work for us but they don't always and we've got an example here. You buy the biggest pack of, in this case, the own brand Luxury Toilet Roll, 24, and that's going to work out at 15.9 pence per 100 sheets. I think that's just there. But as we move here, we can see that if you just buy a simple pack of four, it's actually 15.6 pence per 100 sheets. So it's going to be cheaper to buy that product. Six of those, instead of one pack of that, but then even then it's fiddly you've got to do all the extra lugging around but we'll go for convenience we'll go for the shortcut that tells us this is the cheapest way to buy you're starting to see those links now between those primes they're creating with the big red prices that say this is discount this is cheap you're being clever buying this way and the reality in this case actually it's not the smartest way to purchase
12: i don't think shopping's ever going to be the same it must be pretty exhausting for you
2: I have to say it's not a whole lot of pleasure. And uh, there is a limit to how far you really want to take these things as a consumer because once you start to see the shopping experience as, in a sense, a game of psychological manipulation and a battle of influence, it's not really as much fun as it used to be.
1: Philip Graves talking to Smita Mundasad. And there are lots of tricks that retailers use to get us to spend money. And if you'd like to know how colour, smell, music and so on affect your buying habits or why Christmas products are already in the shops, apart from just making money for the people selling them to you, of course. There is a longer version of that very nice interview. It's on our website. You can find it by going to nakedscientist.com forward slash specials.
3: Well, funnily enough, Philip said that it would take far too long to always go through and check the price per 100 grams or whatever. But I actually do do that, and some of my friends do that as well, because you you can end up saving quite a bit of money that way.
1: I think you've got to think about it in terms of averages, Sarah. Maybe you're a bit exceptional. Maybe you do have time. Someone else like me, who's always in a rush, wouldn't. So even if it doesn't work on you, it's going to work on some people, so they're they're still going to be a winner, aren't they, in some respects?
3: It's true. Well, I mean, not everyone is as cheap as me.
1: (laughs) You said it. Now, Ralph in Peterborough got in contact. Very interesting point in this. He says all these adverts have these wonderful voiceovers that give great descriptions of the products, and then the company name comes up in print on the television. But as I'm blind, I hear all the wonderful info, but then I don't hear where I can get the product. I've just been sold via the advertising. A very important point, I'd say.
0: Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry. This week we're talking about the science of advertising and how understanding how the brain works can make you part with more cash. Kieran has got in touch with a question for Andy Parton, one of our guests. Um, Andy, Kieran says, does subliminal advertising actually work?
9: Um, That's an interesting question. I guess this comes back from the idea from the 50s of putting a single frame into a film and changing people's uh, behaviour. There's no real evidence um, that that actually works in that way at all. And I guess the kind of things that we were talking about when we were talking about subliminally shifting attention where I suggested it might work are a slightly different thing because the notion is to get you to still look at adverts and you would still be processing the advert and de- deciding consciously. It would just be the process that made you look at it that would be unconscious. But I think the idea of just flashing something up very, very briefly and that suddenly making you feel hungry or suddenly giving you a desire to go out and buy something, I don't think there was ever any really good evidence for that.
1: We'll see if people pick up the message hidden in this edition of The Naked Scientist. Thank you, Andy. Andy Parton from Brunel University. Sarah.
3: Oh, Mira, we've got one for you here. We've had a question from Alice saying, is neuromarketing ethical? Is, is it an ethical thing to do? Well, it's a a question that many people ask. I think something that really uh,
11: um, comes to your mind if you hear the term neuromarketing. But uh, first, I think it's good to point out that people already get influenced, that marketers already, without doing neuromarketing research, uh, know very well how to influence people. So that's just done by questionnaires or market research. But it's true that with brain imaging you do get different information about uh, people's behavior than you have um than you get with brain than you get with uh, behavioral research um and for instance, you can see when people um uh, do things more automatically or when they, or whether they put more effort in things um and what this can can cause is that um commercials can uh, maybe target their consumers better. So I can see that that's going to happen in the future by uh, by having knowledge from neur- neuromarketing research. But whether that's really unethical, so making commercials better, but making people uh, get more influenced by the by the commercials, I think that's something that yeah that you can have to decide for yourself whether you think that's unethical or not.
3: So it doesn't make you feel bad what you do then.
11: Uh, no. Because um, marketers or marketeers already knew that celebrities work in advertisements, so I mean that I didn't show anything new with it. I more or less only showed how it works. So I'm just interested in in why uh, things happen the way they do. So (laughs) they already knew this.
1: But what I think Sarah is getting at, um, Mira, is what about if the actual advertising? We've got about 20 seconds. If you could answer it briefly. What about if the actual product you're advertising makes the person feel bad because if they don't buy it, they're made to feel bad for not having it?
11: Um, I would say that's not a good thing. But that's what they all do. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, like you say, that's what they already do, right? So that's not uh, what neuromarketing really is going to change. That's, that's, that's what people already do with um, the way they make their commercials right now.
1: Okay, we have to leave it there. But thank you very much, Mira Stullen, for answering that question. Time now to join on the subject of questions. Diana O'Carroll for this week's Question of the Week.
13: This week, to howl or not to
8: howl? Hello, my name is Sally and I'm located in Halifax in New Yorkshire. My question is, When there is a new moon in England, is the moon in Australia the same? Or because this country is on the other side of the world from us, is the moon either
10: a day earlier or a day later quite full?
13: So is a werewolf in Australia a werewolf in the UK?
10: I'm Dominic Ford from the Department of Physics at the University of Cambridge. So one thing which often surprises people when they travel long distances is that the moon appears in different orientations from different places on the Earth. So for example from the UK you might see a crescent moon on the left side of the moon and then on the equator you might see a sort of smiley face with the bottom of the moon illuminated and then from Australia you might see a crescent on the right hand side and that's because the earth is curved and so different people have a different sense of what direction is up and the whole sky appears rotated. But although the moon can appear rotated it tends to appear with the same phase that is say the same amount of the moon's disc is illuminated from any place on the earth and that comes down to where the moon's phases actually come from which is the orbit of the moon about the earth so the moon orbits once every 29 days around the earth and at one point in the month the moon will appear quite close to the sun and we will see the back face which isn't illuminated by the sun and that's new moon when you can't see the illuminated disk of the Moon. And two weeks later, when the Moon's gone halfway around the Earth, we see the same side of the Moon which is being illuminated by the Sun, and we see a full Moon. And so the simple answer is that the phase of the Moon come down to the orbit of the Moon about the Earth, not where you are on the Earth, and so it is exactly the same time wherever you are.
13: The Moon should appear to be the same no matter where you are on the Earth, if slightly rotated. But surely that's too
10: easy. The slightly more complicated answer is that as you move around on the Earth, you're seeing an ever so slightly different face of the moon. Imagine that you're holding an orange in front of your face and you move your head a few centimetres from side to side. You see a little way around the left or the right side of the orange. And the same thing happens moving around on the Earth, but the moon's a very long way away. It's 400,000 kilometres away. The Earth is only 6,000 kilometres across. And so you can only see about one degree around either side of the moon. But that does mean that when one person sees the moon being totally illuminated, another person will see one degree around the unilluminated side of the moon. And so that leads to a difference of about an hour and a half in when people see the moon being completely full. You'd need a very good telescope to see that, and it would be a very challenging observation but there is a very small difference there.
13: One vantage point might allow you to see a tiny bit of the moon which other people can't. Even the exact times of moon phases, given by calendars, are calculated as if one were standing right in the centre of the Earth with a 5,500 degree iron nickel core around you. I don't think you'd see much of the night sky from there. On the forum, RD added that the moon rises at different times on opposite sides of the Earth, affecting when you could actually note what bits of the moon were visible. Next week is all about moving in the wrong direction.
11: Hi, I'm Carrie from St. Louis, Missouri in the United States, and I'd like to know why it feels weird to move backwards.
13: Why can travelling backwards on a train make some people feel a little bit queasy? Let us know what you think the answer is by emailing chris at com or by writing on the forum. And that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum.
3: So are you always fighting for a forward-facing seat on the train? Diana will be back with next week's question of the week to explain why going backwards can make you feel ill. Does that happen to you? Well, yes, I was going to say, I actually prefer sitting backwards. I don't know (laughs) why, but I actually feel quite sick facing forwards. So you
1: are quite literally backwards in coming forwards. Yeah, that's me. I don't know. I, I purposefully actually sit the other way as well because it doesn't bother me and I tend to find that there are more seats free. <laughs> and so you're less likely to get someone sitting next to you so you can put your bag and things and arrange yourself more comfortably on the seats if you do that because more people seem to prefer going in the direction they're you know, facing, in the direction they're travelling in.
3: Yeah, I do find you get that sort of motion um, motion after effect as well. So when you've been sitting backwards on a train and you get off, everything seems to be coming towards you.
1: Luckily, I don't have that, but I do feel really rather giddy after a long aeroplane flight. Not very nice. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Claire Boyles, who has just tweeted at Naked Scientist that she thought it was a fascinating programme. Thank you, Claire. And thank you also to our wonderful production team, Meera Lingham, Ben Valsler, Diana O'Carroll and Smita Mundasad, who helped set up this week's programme. And also to our guests, Andy Parton and Mira Stullen. Next week, we're in for a bit of a bumpy ride, actually, because we're taking the show... Uh, Down the line of turbulence, we'll hear how convection currents can be used to keep buildings cool and also how actually creating some turbulence in a pipe can keep fluids flowing freely downstream. And that can save your company a lot of money. If you've got any comments or criticisms, as ever, please send them to chris at thenakedscientist.com and until then, have a very nice week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University
0: and is supported by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UKFAST. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.